Welcome to the Choosing Hope podcast. My name is Munira Pramji and I am so glad you're here. This is the podcast where you will meet some extraordinary people who have faced adversity and have overcome it. And they're here to tell you how they did this and what they've learned. We will explore themes like hope, community, and self-care. Topics that I cover in my book, Choosing Hope, One Woman, Three Cancers. If you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hello, please connect with me through Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. My guest today is Kim Curry, who is speaking to us today from Loveland, Colorado. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Kim Curry was a radio guy and ran the most listened to radio station in Miami. And then everything fell apart when he was forced into retirement with a diagnosis of MS. And Kim Curry reinvented his life. And today he is living a full and thriving life with a, a brand new career. And I'm just so delighted to welcome you to the show today, Kim. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for asking me. Mm -hmm. So I have seen your name um, said in a couple of ways. I've heard it as Kim Curry and I've heard it as Kid Curry. Okay. So help us understand that. Okay. Um, my father uh, was, on the, was a retired Navy guy. He'd been in the Navy for 20 years. And we moved to a small town in Colorado called Canyon City, Colorado. There's only one radio station in Canyon City. And my dad worked there. And one day he came home and asked me to uh, babysit at the radio station. I thought I was going to go babysit the people, uh, the general manager's kids. Uh, but what I found out when I got there was I was there to babysit the Sunday morning God show. Because every Sunday morning they would record the services at the churches around town. And then they'd play them on Sunday morning and nobody wanted that job. They needed a high school guy. So I went on the radio as Kim Curry, uh, a little boy out of high school, 17 years old. And then when I got to my first part-time job, when I went to college, this is about when I was 18, uh, I, I was lucky enough to, to get a job at a top 40 radio station. Oh. And top 40 is the music that we all listen to. It's the current music of the day. Um, but the, you couldn't call in the 1970s, there weren't very many men in America named Kim, okay. much less, much less little boys named Kim. In fact, my parents tried to protect me. My first name is actually Kimbrell, Kimbrell, which my mother used to tell me was the male version of Kimberly, but I've never met another Kimberly in my life. You're unique. Uh, <laughs> I, you know what? I think that mattered in my head. Somewhere in my subconscious that mattered. But you couldn't call a guy Kim on the radio back then. So he, I was in the studio one day and he was having all these drops recorded, all these production things recorded. And he said, well, we can't call you Kim because it was my first day on the job. He said, we'll call you. And he picked up a record and it was the record by Bobby Boris Pickett called The Monster Mash. Okay. Now, The Monster Mash was written by Gary Paxton. So he picked up the record and he looked at it and he said, okay, you'll be Gary Paxton. And so that was my first radio name. Oh, so, goodness. yeah, well, that was that. And I was a part-time kid that was in college. But when I got my first full-time job, I was driving across the country, preparing to go into Knoxville, Tennessee, to be on the radio at 10 p.m. 
And I, I thought, well, back in those days, there was Wolfman Jack and the Boogeyman and Dr. Brock, the ugliest jock in rock. So I wanted to come <laughs> crazy. I wanted to come up with a good name. So I was going to be on the radio at 10 p.m. So I decided I'd call myself Night Smoke. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got to the radio station on my first full-time job, I got out of the car and this is distinct in my head. I walked up the sidewalk, went up the stairs, opened the door. It was a glass building, opened the door, and there was a lady sitting there at the receptionist desk. And behind her was this big guy with curly hair and he had a Hawaiian shirt on. And so I reached out my hand to the receptionist lady and I said, hello, ma'am. I'm your new nighttime disc jockey. I'm night smoke. And the guy behind her said, well, if it isn't Kid Curry, well, I said, I'd never liked that name because when I was a kid, because they didn't call me Kim, my parents protected me by calling me Casey. But when my friends wanted to get under my skin, they called me Kid Curry, who was a fictional Western guy from, there was Kid Curry and Hannibal Hayes. They were gunfighters from way back in the day. And Kid Curry, I never liked it. So when the guy said, well, if it isn't Kid Curry, I said, I hate that name. I've never liked that name. And he said, well, then I won't sign your check. Oh, my. I said, well, then Kid Curry it is. And, you know, fortunately, this guy saw something that I'd not even considered. I told you earlier about my voice. Uh, when I was young, I was a very young sounding guy in a world of very big, deep sounding disc jockeys. And he thought Kid Curry because of my name. I didn't think that. Mm. But come to find out, <laughs> it was the right thing to do because for my entire radio career, there was only one Kid Curry and it was me. When you talked about Kid Curry, there was one. If you talked about Bill Tanner, you talked about a bunch of Bill Tanners or Paul Drake. You talked about a bunch of Paul Drakes or you know Steve Jefferson, but there was only one Kid Curry. So it really paid off and it was a moment that really uh, mattered and mm -hmm. it kind of made me who I was. I didn't right. even know so, what was going to happen. You talked about four names, like in, in the span of like five minutes. So what is the name that you relate to today? Uh, Kim, thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Kim. Um, so your dad was a radio guy. Um, yes. He, he uh, got you interested in, in the show. You went to babysit at this radio station, the Sunday program. Yes, and you did the station identification, which got you hooked. Do you remember what the station identification was? I can't forget it. It will always be there um, mm -hmm. because, you know, there I was a little kid and I was running these tapes and there comes a time every hour where you have to do the station identification. So the tape was ending and I was prepared there with my little hands on the buttons and the microphone to be turned up. And it came time at 7 a.m. And I said, good morning. It's 7 a.m. This is KRLN, Canyon City, Colorado, the station with the news reputation. But hearing that in my head, I was like, oh, wow, wow. <laughs> Your fate I, was sealed. I was on the radio. I'm going to do this forever. And it, uh, it, it was a great start. Dad, thank yeah. you very much. And you were a high school kid then, so you knew early in life what your purpose was going to be. Yes, ma'am. I was, um, I was, you know, the, I was 
very outgoing in school. I was the high school drum major. I was the senior class president. Not that it mattered in my school because the head boy and head girl were more important, but I was the senior class president and the class clown. (laughs) So I was always one of those kind of guys. Yeah, definitely one extroverted guy. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so um, I'd love for you to share with my um, listeners um, your life before you were diagnosed with with MS, because you had one hell of a successful radio career. I mean, you traveled, you you were hobnobbing with the rich and famous. I mean, you had it all. Can you walk us through um, kind of snippets of your life as a, a radio guy? The the, we, I used in my mind, I used to think about radio disc jockeys as like the bottom of the totem pole. There were okay. movie stars, TV stars, and radio stars. So I think we're always, because we're in radio, we're always trying to get on TV. But that really was something I never wanted to do. I just love being on the radio. So I was in Knoxville for my first full-time job. I wasn't there very long until things started falling apart. Uh, the, the guy who hired me was fired a week after I got there. And needless to say, there you start to wonder, am I going to be in the new guy's plans? Uh, and I, I was to a degree, but I didn't like him very much because he wasn't, as, he wasn't as creative. The guy who hired me was a very famous Los Angeles disc jockey. His name was Steve Clark, and he was a big, famous guy. Well, the guy... After he got fired, the guy who replaced him wasn't a very impressive kind of programmer to me. So I quickly tried to get out, put out some some air check tapes of my show. And fortunately, a guy by the name of Jerry Clifton uh, took my tape in Miami and listened to it. Now, the funny story behind that is this. And I know I'm going to get sidetracked in all these little goofy stories. But there was a song. There's a song by Peter Frampton called Baby, I Love Your Way. Um, I know that song. Yes, ma'am. It starts off with applause. And then he says, thank you. Well, as a young radio DJ trying to be funny, I, I had put on this tape, this thing that I did. I heard, I heard the applause and I thought to myself, suppose I said something before he said, thank you. So I said, hey, Peter, your zipper's down. He said, thank you. <laughs> and then I went on with my little radio panter. Well, when Jerry Clifton heard that in Miami, he thought, I got to hire that guy because mm-hmm. he, he's thinking differently. Yeah. And so right. I just, just something I just happened to do. And he, he clicked on it. So that was really a moment again in my life that was really important to me. I did not know it, but Jerry Clifton was a legend in the business at the time. I was a young radio guy, uh, more involved in trying to get my radio show as opposed to knowing the history of the business. But I got hired by this guy who, and that immediately gave me credibility. But before I was at that radio station, the station had done a few illegal contests and he got all involved with that and got fired about eight months after I got there. Again, my boss gets fired after I get there. Mm. So, you know, I I didn't like the guy who replaced him. So I once again started putting out the feelers, but the number one radio station in America at the time was in Miami. And it wasn't the one I was working on. I was on 96X. He was trying to beat the legendary Y100. And in the 1970s, everybody in America that was on the radio will tell you that Y100 was the best radio station in America. Well, the guy 
that was listening to me on 96X was the boss on Y100. And he thought, I want to hire that guy over here. So he hired me over there. And so now I've worked for one radio legend. And now I'm working for another radio legend, a guy who I really didn't want to go to work for because Jerry Clifton had made those guys the devil. <laughs> oh, we got to beat them. We got to beat them, whatever it takes. And then suddenly this guy offers me a job and I was really leery about going, but it was the smartest thing I ever did because I was on the number one radio station in America. Uh, then I wanted to become a boss. I wanted to run the world because I thought I learned a bunch about radio. And so I got hired to go off to a job in Knoxville, Tennessee uh, to run a very famous radio station named KTSA. It's on the AM dial. And back in those days, most of the time of type of radio that I did was on the FM dial, mm -hmm. but there was still a few AM radio stations and KTSA was one of them. They hired me because I thought I knew what I was doing and come to find out I was just a young punk and didn't know what I was doing and they dismissed me. But I got hired across the street. Again, I went across the street and I had an owner who had more faith in me and kind of let me do what I wanted to do. And we had some relative success really quickly. But Bill Tanner, the, uh, the guy who was running Y100 at that time had run up to Washington, D.C. Now, you know, remember that market size is important. Miami is the 12th largest market in America. Washington, D.C. is fairly large. Uh, and to be at a prestigious radio station in Washington was a smart thing to do. So he hired me to come up to D.C. Now, this is where the multiple sclerosis that had been teasing me my whole life had its first real impact. And what year was that? This was, well, it was during, it was right after the second Reagan assassination. So let me say 83, 84, possibly. I, I can't really tell you for sure, but okay. shortly after the second of the Reagan assassination attempt. And, um, but what I, I was on the radio at night. I was primarily, I was the kid DJ. So they always hired me to be on the radio at night. And so in Washington, that's what I was doing. And what was a teen feature in every market I'd been in, and every time I'd done a show at night, I did this thing called bed check. And kids would call in and make jokes about their schoolmates or talk about a teacher or talk about their brother. And it was just really quick one-liners. And I'd fire back some smarty comment. And then at the end, I'd say, come get me, mother. I'm through, giving the impression I'm a young kid. And my mom's going to come pick me up from work. Well, in Washington, D.C., what had what was supposed to be a young kid feature became a adult political feature. I'd have little kids, but then I'd have politicians or politically active people stop in and say things. And this guy used to call. He'd say, hello, my name is Frank the Framer. I'm over here at the White House. I'm doing my work downstairs and I'm listening to you on Wash FM. And I thought he was joking. Yeah, sure. He's not in the White House. He's come up with this name. Well, he kept calling. So one time I got him off the air. I picked up the phone and said, wait a minute, don't hang up. Who are you? What is this? He says, well, I, my name is Frank DeFramer. He didn't tell me his real name. I'm the actual framer of portraits inside the White House. And Ronald Reagan has been sitting in my office in here listening to you do bed check. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Oh, so, so this is for real. This is real. This is okay. this was for real. So, okay. So now I meet Frank DeFamer, but only over the telephone. He and I become friends. He keeps calling the show. And my girlfriend at the time, her grandmother comes to town and she says that she went, well, if you know somebody at the White House, I want a tour. Mm -hmm. 
So I call to the White House. Now, I don't even realize, I'm not sure Frank DeFramer is real. He's only told me a story. So I called the White House and I'm like, hi, I need to speak with Frank DeFramer. And they're like, oh yeah, Frank, hang on a second. And put me on hold and Frank picks up the phone. And I'm Frank, first, I can't believe you're real. <laughs> Secondly, I've got a grandmother in town who wants a tour at the White House. So he sets up the tour. He says, just let them know when you get here that you're here to see Frank DeFramer. Tell them you're Kid Curry. They'll know who you are. You'll be able to walk right in. Well, it was right after the second, I mean, the, the assassination attempt, but they had not changed the security around the White House yet. So I'm driving around the White House and I see a road that looks like it goes right up to the side of the White House. So I drive up there. And as I'm driving up, all of a sudden these men come at me <laughs> with their guns pulled in their suits. And I start to have this reaction, this adrenaline rush. Well, multiple sclerosis, a, a, a trigger is stress. Okay. And as I start to stress, I start to lose vision in my right eye. And that concerns me. So I start to stop the car. And then as I start to get out to explain to them what I'm doing, I fall out of the car because my right side had just stopped working. Oh my. I didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. But as I'm falling out, I'm like, I'm Kid Curry. I'm here to see Frank the Framer. <laughs> it's like, oh, kid, come on in. Come on in. So that's when I really knew there was something wrong. But it once again, it didn't alert me enough to make me go to the doctor. It just didn't. My life continued. You thought it was just a moment in time. Just a moment. A bad day. A flu. Something. Up. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to get going. So then I got a job in Baltimore. I left Washington, D.C., went up to Baltimore for a while to work for a very famous station, B-104, about three or four years, just because, you know, Steve Kingston is the program director there. And I've been lucky to work for Jerry Clifton, Bill Tanner, and now Steve Kingston. Now, Steve Kingston ends up running Z100 in New York, the number one radio station in America. But at the time, he was in Baltimore. So I went to work for him for a while because, once again, education for me, it was good. Then I decided to go back to Miami. And when I went back to Miami, everything was going well, but we had Hurricane Andrew happen. At the same time Hurricane Andrew happens, my father becomes very ill and has to have both his legs amputated. Now, yes. that changes me inside. And my radio career just stopped because I wanted to come home and take care of my dad. Mm -hmm. So I left Miami and resigned. And they were just, everyone panicked. They couldn't believe it. Um, but I had to go. I mean, I was my you, dad. You were at the, at the height of your career at this point. Yes, and you leave everything to look after your dad. Go home to take care of my dad. But the guy who was the, my college radio teacher was the program director of a radio station in Pueblo, Colorado. And my father lived about 30 miles away in this little town, Canyon City, I told you of earlier. So when I, when I decided to go home, I thought, I got to have a job. So let me call this guy, my old college professor, J. Ralph Carter, and I'll ask him if he can find a job for me. Well, he finds a job and makes me the boss. <laughs> he makes me the morning show guy and then lets me be the program director. So I spend a year there getting everything together for my father as best I can. We get, lit, uh, we get the ramps in, change the door widths in this house and everything. And then my dad says, what are you doing here? <laughs> you're supposed to be working and you're supposed to be doing Miami and you're supposed to be in Washington, D.C. and these big places. What are you doing here? And so my dad said, it's time to get back to work. So 
I was fortunate enough to go back down to Miami um, through a series of time around 1996. The program director of the very famous Power 96 is which I, what I were, where I was working. Uh, they were having some ratings problems and they dismissed him. Uh, they told me to be the interim program director. So you sit here and watch things and we're going to go around the country and find the best program director to bring into this place. Meanwhile, I'm going, it's supposed to be me. Hello. I had had everything, all the tools. I was ready to go. But because I was the teenage DJ at night, management never took me seriously. Mm. <laughs> it was like, you know, I understand. I mean, it was okay. I got it. I had groupies coming to the radio station all the time. That wasn't my fault. That was the type of radio I did. So six months later, after I have taken this radio station that I'm supposed to just kind of pedal until they find someone to take my place, I'm doing what I want to do. And the ratings start going up. So they, then they make me the program director, finally in 1996. So I spend the next nine years uh, having more fun than I could ever imagine. And you got to remember that this is a radio station basically was handed to me by people I'd been working with for 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't that, that I did anything magical. It's mm -hmm. I was the conductor. I was the conductor of the symphony, just a different conductor. Because everybody was, everything that I needed was laid in front of me. All I did was put a different mindset with the people. Mm -hmm. We had the highest ratings in the history of the station. Incredible. And it worked out very, very well. But then, again, the stress alone of doing all that, because, you know, radio stations don't shut off. And when you're a program director, you're up at 3 o'clock in the morning to make sure they're playing the right song and saying the right things. And then you do it again at seven in the morning. And then you're there at 10 at night. And then you're there at three in the morning again. So I, the stress yeah, right. of all that over nine years, th those things that were happening to me in Washington, D.C. started happening to me in, in, in reality. I stopped being able to walk straight. My right eye vision went and it was getting worse and worse. My shoulders were killing me. And I went home on a vacation over Christmas time to visit my mother uh, with my family, my wife and my kids. And my wife, my mother says, as we're leaving, there's something wrong with you. You don't look right. Uh, you better get to a doctor. And then a few months later, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Okay. I just want to go back and, yes, and kind of revisit some of the time frames. Yes, so the first time that you um, went to Washington yes, and you, you realized this is going on was 1983. Right around there, yes, ma'am. Maybe eighty-four. Yes, ma'am. And then what happens is, um, at some point, when your dad's not well, you go back to look after him. Yes, ma'am. And that would have been in the nineteen nineties. Yes, ma'am. Then your dad says, "What are you doing? You need to be working." And that's when <laughs> you go back to Miami, and now you you're taking on this program director role around the nineteen ninety-six. Yes, ma'am. Okay, great. So, so th th this is really helpful. Now, what okay. happened to your dad? In the 1970s, he had a head-on collision, kind of almost head-on, with a tractor trailer late one night as he was coming back home from work in a, in a different city in our, in our state. Uh, and it, it took his knees out. Eventually, uh, he got, well, back then, it was the flesh-eating disease before we even knew what it was. Uh, he was one of the first people that they diagnosed to have a flesh-eating disease, and they needed to cut his legs off to save him. Um, 
And then, you know, in time, my father just, just eventually just passed away. He just got old and about 20 years ago now he passed away. Um, But again, you know, I had to go home and help him. (laughs) And then, you know, there was a lot of satisfaction in telling my father that I got to be the program director of this particular radio station because my dad was a radio guy. He knew, he knew. And then came the time when I got to call him and say, Hey dad, we're number one for the first time. And, and to it's hear all him, about the ratings, isn't it? Like that. Well, it is. That's, <laughs> it the, is. that's the holy grail. Yes, ma'am. Radio. But he, but he knew it. He knew it. And so it was glad, I was glad to share that with him. But then, of course, there was that first time when I, I wanted to call him after I did well and he wasn't there. And I was at the same stoplight thinking I should call him. Oh, he's not here. He's not here. So, yeah. So. But so my dad was a radio hero. I can see that. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So, so Kim, um, so now you're, you're, you're diagnosed with, with MS. Um, I don't know much about MS, and I'd love for you to be able to share what is it like for you day-to-day living? Multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease. Um, Crazy things happen. Lesions appear on your brain and in your spine, in my spine, and in, 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 in my neck. I've got lesions in all three places. And there, there's a degradation of, there's a, a, a kind of a, there's a chemical sleeve that goes around your nerve that's called myelin. Now, for some reason in multiple sclerosis patients, they, that degradates in their system. In, in, in my, my legs, I, I don't have feeling in my legs hardly at all. As I say that to you, they're sticking straight out because the adrenaline of you and I even talking right now, the adrenaline is there but they're numb. So, so the lesions, when they appear on your brain, that affects whatever part of your body. So the lesions that I have affect my lower body. Okay. So that's why, that's why I'm in a wheelchair. That's why that's what you see here. It's my wheelchair. I'm fully in a wheelchair. So, but, but then there are different degrees. I can tell you that MS is the snowflake disease because no two are alike because the lesions appear in different sizes, different places. And that did kind of de- designates what kind of MS you're going to have. Mm-hmm. But it's not good because, you know, it's funny now that we're at this point, you know, I got diagnosed and then, you know, I remember that I was at a corporate meeting over in Naples, Florida, and I was in the middle of the meeting. My doctor called. So I left the room, took the call. She says, Mr. Curry, you've got MS. You need to come in. We need to start putting together a plan. So I leave the meeting and go to my car and I call my wife. And my wife starts doing the 1980, I'm sorry, uh, the 2005 version of Google. And she starts Googling on MS and she's telling me all these things. And all I hear is people die from this. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What do you mean? How does that happen? So my wife refers to that particular day as the day our snow globe got shook. You know, those snow globes you take. And she said, everything we had, everything we knew just went poof. And things slowly had to start falling into place, including where are you going to go? What are you going to do? What doctors are you going to see? Uh, and, and, you know, the, the life of Top 40 Radio was quick, you know, fast, new songs. In fact, when I got started, we had to play the songs on, on turntables and you had to 
three minutes. You had three minutes. You had to get the next song ready and know what you were going to say and then get the next song ready after that. So bing, boom, boom, boom. Well, suddenly, screech. What do you, what do you mean it's going to take a week to see the doctor? <laughs> what do you mean it's going to take two weeks to take this test? <laughs> what do you mean it's going to take two weeks to get the results? And I'm not used to that. No. And so it became a real mental thing for me. I, I struggled for a long time. And at the same time, I spent probably six years going down pretty hard. Um, I started on a cane, went to crutches, and then ended up in a wheelchair um, over about a six. Happened, I'm sorry? All of that happened within a six-month period? Well, no, ma'am. All that happened within a, within a two- or three-year period. Okay. So I, so, and then the rest of I, I start, I continued going down. My shoulder kept getting worse. My eyes kept getting worse. And, you know, we chronicle in my book, 50 different falls because I, you know, even when I was transferring, I transfer from my chair into the couch and I fall. Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to give in to having MS. So my wife let me buy a tractor. <laughs> we had an acre property. And so I would pull myself up on this John Deere tractor and, and pull my legs up and whip my legs around and, and go out and, plow, you know, mow the South 40. <laughs> and I dig up uh, holes and things like that for my dog and things. And I, you know, do the landscaping. So I tried like crazy to, to think I wasn't going down, but I was going down pretty strong for about six years, seven years. And, you know, when I first got MS, there were only five drugs that they used to combat this disease. At this time, there was about eight. And my doctor said, you've been on this thing long enough and, and it's not doing anything for you. So we're going to change you to a different drug. I went from Rebif, which works well for some people, to a dr another drug called Copaxone. But my doctor, who is the author of this book, Optimal Health with Multiple Sclerosis, uh, his name is Alan Bowling. Dr. Bowling believes that there's something about vitamin D in multiple sclerosis patients. We as humans need vitamin D. We all do, we get it from the sun. But the lack, but we never get enough, I can tell you that much. Nobody ever really has enough vitamin D. But the lack of vitamin D really does affect a multiple sclerosis patient. Mm -hmm. So my doctor says, you know, we're gonna change this for you, this drug, and then you're gonna start, you need to start taking vitamin D. And I fought him for six months. I said, what's the vitamin gonna do? I was a a smart little radio DJ. And I'd say things like vitamin C, it's not going to stop my cold because I didn't, there was no proof. So it was in my mind to not take the vitamin, but my wife stayed on me. And six months after I changed my Copaxone to Copaxone, I started taking the vitamin D 500 IUs a day, strong, strong every day. And suddenly after about six months, my condition leveled off. Mm. I wasn't getting worse. My eye wasn't worse. Mm -hmm. I was able to kind of control myself in my chair. It's like everything kind of just stopped and slowed down. And it took me a while to even figure out what that was all about. <laughs> because, you know, I was scared. I was dying. My, my, we, were, we figured that we were trying to prepare for the worst, slowly but surely. At the same time, not thinking about it. I'm trying not to think I've got it. You know, I'm that, I'm that kind of guy. As so my father used to the, Yeah, on the one hand, you're kind of denying the situation and sitting on your John Deere you know, truck. <laughs> Absolutely. And on the other hand, you, you can't escape what's happening to your body. So yeah. you're having to deal with all of that. Um, so 
day to day, um, do you have like good days and bad days? Um, and within one day, do you go through multiple uh, iterations of uh, disability? Yes, ma'am. Um, it starts when I get out, when I put my feet on the ground, uh, when I get out of bed. First of all, uh, my legs seize constantly. Um, I can be, that's why MS patients don't sleep who have the, who have my kind of MS. We don't sleep because the legs seize and they give us medicine for this. It's called baclofen. And I'm on the top of the pill. I, I can only take 80 milligrams of the pill. And they would, they, the next step is to put a baclofen pump in my body. Well, I'm not doing that. I, that to me, that's like, whoa, no, I'm not. So I take as much as I can, but my legs seize constantly. So even to make the motion to get out of bed in the morning, my legs cramp up and seize, and I've got to get my feet on the floor to stop the cramp in my calves. If I can stop the calves from, from seizing, I can then kind of stand up enough and then pull myself into my chair and just transfer over into my chair. My wife has afforded me... Um, Everything I need to get into my bathrooms and around the house, my wife is the best when it comes to, because it's expensive to be disabled in America, I guarantee you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I, I, we have to have special doors made. Uh, there's special hinges that open the door wider for me. Um, I have a lift. I have to, to get into the house. I have a lift that takes me from the ground floor into the actual entrance to the house. So that costs it's expensive to be disabled in America. So you know, and then, one of the things that you do, uh, your wife does, I, I understand, is yes. advocacy work. Oh, Big my wife, advocacy. I'm lucky to have, well, you know, <laughs> I, I don't like to brag too much, but I got really lucky, man. My wife is, you know, when, when, I, when we got, I got diagnosed, when we got diagnosed, she decided to take over and to run the show. Uh, we came out here to Colorado when we decided to leave South Florida and decided to fit, flip and uh, flip houses, fix and flip. Uh, we did two of those and my wife didn't like the way the real estate agents were treating her. <laughs> so she went out and got a real estate license. A year and a half later, she was setting records in the state for real estate. She's gone from there into becoming an um, She's a, what they call a, a, a real estate coach. She's, an, she's a business coach. Uh, she, she, she teaches people how, that sell 100 houses how to sell more houses. And she does this internationally. And she does it from 7 in the morning until 5 in the afternoon. And during the pandemic, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I get real good about my wife here. Remember, a year ago at this time, we were in America we were in trouble. We were panicking. No one was going anywhere. There was nobody on the streets. The animals were coming back into the towns. The birds were flying that you'd never seen. Um, but my wife, the business community knew that they needed to get ready for it when it was over. So my wife was on the phone every day, half hour sessions, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., telling them, okay, now when this is over, you'll need to do this. You'll need to have this ready. You need to protect your funds now because we don't know how long this is going to last. So my wife does that for people. And that's just that part of her job, um, of what she likes to do. She's very much my advocate. She is my full-time caregiver. Um, it's funny that when I, yeah, I'll go months <laughs> and not even come close to falling. And then suddenly I'll start to fall and she's right there. And it's just funny how that works with us. But she is, um, she is very much an asset to me. I can tell you that now as I look back, um, 
getting the MS kind of made me a better person. I'm kind of lucky. You know, I, well, I tell me about that. What, what does that mean? Made well, you a better person? Well, first of all, the, the radio industry went through a major change around 1996. The Federal Communications Commission dropped ownership rules. There used to be hundreds of owners of radio stations around America. Today, there are maybe six. So in 1996 began this corporate takeover of radio. I was working for a company, the Beasley Broadcast Company, that was anti-corporate takeover. They wanted to keep it the old school, just the way it is. And they let me do what I wanted to do. We got the best ratings in the history of the station. We did well. But after I got diagnosed and I left the business, a couple short years after that, the company got sold and they got sold to a major corporation and it's never been the same since. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm the kind of radio guy who believes that I, you know, my job as a radio person, whatever market is, to go into, figure out what the market is doing and how to, to make my stand. And that's me as a programmer trying to fight off all the other competition. Well, it's become so homogenized now because everything you hear, you hear in Detroit, you hear the same thing in St. Louis, same thing in Denver. It's all homogenized now. There's no, no creativity in radio. So then thank you for getting me out of the business at the right time because there's no way I would have survived. Someone would have fired me because I would have told someone to sit down and shut up. <laughs> and uh, so, so that, that was a good thing. But there's also... You know, being active, remember, I, I used to be the guy people gravitated toward, but then when you become an, an MS patient and you're in, on a cane and in crutches, then in a wheelchair, people move away from you. And that was a mental thing I had to deal with. I really did. It took me a long time to deal with that because- How you know, did you I, deal with it? Well, I think I finally realized that, here's the thing, when Kid Curry- the DJ or program director used to walk into a room. Everybody paid attention. Well, when Kim Curry rolls into a room in a wheelchair, everybody pays attention. So in the beginning, it bothered me that people paid attention. But now when I roll in in the wheelchair, I rule the room. You can probably tell by now I'm not too afraid. Mm -hmm. um, so when I roll into a room in my wheelchair, I'm going to say, hi to everybody. What's going on? Hey, nice hat. You know, hey, I love your mask. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm going to run the room because that's what I've always done. I had to figure out how to do that, though. It took me a long time. And, some, you know, after I told you that I, I had had this medicine, modern medicine miracle that slowed down the progression of my disease, I still suffer from everything I was suffering from at the time. It just hasn't gotten worse. So, but when this all, this all happened to me, you know, when I left the business, I disappeared. People for a long time, there was even a big thing in, in the magazine, trade magazines, where is Kid Curry? What happened to Kid Curry? Where did he go? I asked people not to tell anybody because I was, I didn't want anybody to know. I was kind of embarrassed. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, and so after my condition leveled off, I had stayed in touch with a friend. Uh, he, his birthday is April fool's day and I'm a 420 baby. So he and I always had birthday conversations every year after I left the business, but it was our, it was only real quick. How you doing? Happy birthday, bah, done. And then one day I was sitting at home. This is after my condition leveled off. It was around Thanksgiving and my phone rang and it was this guy. Well, Vince Pellegrino, 
you, you see, everybody sees the Grammys. Those people get awards at those Grammys, but they would not be getting those awards without the record promoters behind the scenes getting those songs on the radio stations. Well, Vince, years ago, decided he was going to have a, an award ceremony for those promotion people. It became a really big thing. It was the underground party. Everybody went to it because all the guys, all the real radio people, all the real promoters, that was our party every year. Um, so I got a phone call from Vince around the time he was going to have his party. And he said, you know, you disappeared too fast. I think you need to come to this next convention. Uh, I think I want to give you an, an, a lifetime achievement award. People want to see your face. So that really hit me. <laughs> First of all, it was like, you know, my wife was, she couldn't believe we were just, we couldn't believe it. Cause after all this time, after just disappearing and getting this thing happen to us, then this guy wanted to bring me back. So flies me and my family out to New York. Um, we go to the, we go to, it was a BB King's blues club is where his convention was. The party was. And uh, I, I get there and I get to see Vince. It's winter. It's close to Thanksgiving. And so he's got a big winter coat on and a scarf and a hat. And I see him before the show. It's like real quick. Hi, hi. He's got to get going. So he goes off and does the thing. I, they put me at a table on the side. Nobody still knows I'm there. Um, they introduce me and they give me the award. And I look out to the crowd of 30 years of friends and acquaintances. And it was quite emotional for me. Um, but I still only had seen Vince at the beginning, and then he was on stage to introduce me. And so we really hadn't had any contact. After the show, he puts me off. They put me off on this other table, and everybody's there the rest of the night, hugging, kissing, miss you, what's going on, bada, bada. And then somebody comes and says, Vince is going to meet with you tomorrow morning at the hotel for breakfast. I said, okay. I, I realize he's busy. The thing's been going on. So the next morning, Vince shows up at the hotel. And he proceeds to tell me that the reason he was having me out there was because he wanted me to know that he was dying and he wasn't going to be here much longer. Um, and then he said, I want you to wake up. You need to come out and do something. You disappeared. You had too much to offer. And, you know, I, I, with the, the emotions of him passing away, having this great magazine that he was the editor of and owner of, and this great convention that he had just had me to, knowing that was all going to come to a screeching halt, I didn't know what to do. I said, I, I went home from that. My wife and I, are like, maybe I could help him run the magazine. Maybe I can keep the magazine going for him. Or maybe I could get back into radio. Or maybe I could produce songs again because I'd produced records before. And, and then, you know, it just came to the realization, there's no way. I'd been out of the business by that time for 10 years. It changes every six months. Uh, nobody knows who I am. Nobody cares. But I felt like I had to do something to pay homage to my friend Vince. So that's when I thought, you know, maybe I should write this story. Maybe I should write my story about my career, my MS, and then my friend Vince pulling me up and saying, do something. Because it's Vince's reason, Vince's fault that I write. Because it was him. He's the one that I wanted to do this for and pay homage. So Vince's story is in my book, Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through. Um, what the book, uh, the, the, the title of the book? Well, that was the last thing I said when I did that bed check every night. Remember, I was on the radio at night. I was a young kid on the radio and I sounded like a little kid. And I, you know, and it's funny. Within the last two months, 
someone finally figured out where that line may have come from because it's always been in my head. I don't know where I got it. But here's what happened. I got an email a few weeks ago from a person who tried to compete against me in Miami on my radio show, and I killed him. But he still ended up being a pretty famous guy. I get this thing the other day because he, you know, I promote my book, Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through. And he says, so did you come up with that line or was it this other name? Could have been Mason Dixon. And I said, gee, I don't know. Where, where would he have been? He said, well, he was in Memphis on the radio in the 1970s. And so I went, wait a minute. That's exactly what happened. I was driving through Memphis to my first full-time job in Knoxville. I heard this guy say, come get me, mother. I'm through. And I thought, I'll use that. Okay. And it was funny that it took me so long for me to realize, where did that line come from? And the guy said, I think I was working with a guy who used to say that. And so as I was driving through Knoxville, I heard that line, come get me, mother. I'm through, which is what I used at the end of my show every night. Kids, everybody yelled it. They, they'd yell it to me at the schools, come get me mother right through, you know? So it just, so I just thought, let's name the book, come get me mother, I'm through. And that book is a memoir. I actually purchased your book, uh, Kim. <laughs> I haven't quite gone through it, uh, but, but that's my commitment today. Um, but that, that book um, really talks about your entire journey, everything yes, you've really. learned. And uh, what was it like going back and remembering all of that as you were writing the book? Was it a painful process? First of all, I had to, I had to come up, I'm a radio guy. I had to learn how to write. So I found the lady who was in charge of the Northern Colorado Writers Association. Uh, she had founded it and then she was off doing something else. And I called the foundation. They said, there's this lady who may want to help you. So I found, in fact, I've got her book here too. Her name is... Uh, Carrie Flanagan, she writes the book Guide to Magazine Article Writing. Um, and, she, and I told her, I said, I've got this story. I'm a radio guy. I need to learn how to write. And she gave me assignments. She didn't even talk to me for six months. She said, you need to read this book, this book, this book, and this book. And then we got together and she said, so what have you learned? And surprisingly enough, writing a book is all about the spine. You yes. find the spine and then you weave the story back to the spine. And that's really all I needed to learn, but she wanted to make sure I knew it. So, <laughs> so then, then she sends me off for six months to research, to do my research. And she has me uh, writing her notes and things I'd like to mention. And then after six months, she said, okay, here you go. You're on your own. Start writing. And I just sat down and just went. And I had to do research on the songs, on the concerts that I had produced and the places I'd worked at and the people I'd worked with and the events of the day. And it was just, it was totally engrossing. But for a guy like me, a radio guy, it was like, yeah, I'm working again, man. You know, I'm up at six o'clock in the morning and I'm not going to bed till 10. And as soon as I got done writing it, I went into my studio behind me to record it. So this was very much uh, an uh, a mission for me that I loved and uh, it changed me. And it was because my, I wanted to tell my friend Vince's story. Mm. Um, you know, I wanted to thank my friend Vince. And uh, since then I've written another book. I wrote another book called the death of fairness, which is a historical fiction. It pertains to what happened in 1987 
when President Reagan rescinded the FCC's fairness doctrine. That's the rule that uh, required equal time for contrasting points of view. And what that did was it brought you people to lie unabated. Um, It used to be if you were on an FM station or a TV station and you told a lie, a regular citizen, you or me, could go to that station and say, I demand equal time to prove that person to be a liar. When you take that rule away, Mr. Reagan, what you've done is he said he did it because it was contrary to the rights given in the First Amendment of free speech. But what he did was he took away my right of free speech to call a liar a liar. So this has become a real issue for me. And that's what my second book is about. Remarkable. So you've gone from being a radio guy to an author. Yes, ma'am. And that I've already published those two books. I'm working on my third, um, which is which is a takeoff of the death of fairness, um, and it it's finished. I'm in my last part of the editing, and I've already pitched it to some publishers, and they're waiting to see the project. So oh, I'm I'm self-published. I want to be a hybrid. I want to I can do both. I've already self-published. Now I want a publisher because I just want to see what that's like. You know. Yeah. Why not? Try something new. I've got nothing to do. <laughs> um, talk to me about resilience, because when I hear your story, the spine for me is resilience. Talk yes, to me ma'am. about resilience. You know, I can tell you that, you know, my, I go back to very simple things that my father and people have said. And when my dad said, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do about it. That has really leaned in my brain from the time I was 10 when he probably said it the first time. So I believe that it's not everybody has. Every day, everybody has. I have every day. There's probably two or three different me's throughout the day. Um, I can't, I don't sleep at night because my legs seize. So I nap a lot during the day. Uh, You know, I, I can sit down and write for hours on end, but then suddenly I get a real letdown. And I'm affected, uh, some MS patients aren't, aren't, but I'm affected by low pressure systems. And whenever the, whenever the weather changes here, man, sometimes I can't even get out of bed. And that's just the residual MS. But again, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do about it. I and love I, that. Love and, that. And my, mo- my wife, how could I, you know, I hear her every day. During the the depths of the pandemic, when we were all desperate, I got to hear my wife preach positivity every day. Get up. Let's fix this. We've got to be ready. We've got to be prepared because we're we're business. We can't fool around here. We the, our society needs us. And so when I'm hearing this, <laughs> it's like, well, you know, I'm going to be tough too. So I, we live a fairly fairly positive, straightforward life here. Um, we, we're not, we believe in spirituality without religion. We're, we're wholesome people. Um, you know, I believe in waking up with a clean heart and going to bed with a clean heart, knowing that you've done the right things for you and the people around you and the people that matter to you. And so that's where I sit every day. And I have a partner, my wife, who now over 20 years, uh, Remember, she used to be my date. She was my lady on my arm at the Grammys for years. <laughs> and then she had to take over the show. And it's really her show now. I just, she lets me play. <laughs> love, love that. Um, talk to me about hope. What are you hopeful for? 
Well, I'm hoping that, you know, I, I'm 65, almost 66 years old. Um, my first remembrances are things like the Kennedy assassination and the USS Pueblo being, being taken. Um, my father was a very smart man, not very political, but always aware I have become more and more aware since I have sat here since 2005. I really pay attention now to what's going on in Washington, D.C., in politics in my own state. I, things changed for us dramatically here in America a few years ago, and I'm not of it. I want to get back to the way we have been for our entire history. So I'm hoping you know, in fact, I, I do these, uh, my webpage, krcurry.com, uh, I, do, I do a feature there. If you click on the more uh, section, it, it gives a thing called the view for my wheelchair. I, 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 I'm trying to get a hold of young people. I'm, and it's tough because I'm not young. <laughs> I'm a 65-year-old man, but I was brought up in top 40 radio, man. You know, I believe in young. I believe in the youth. I believe in those minds. I believe in my daughter, my, my, my three daughters and my son. These are smart people. Um, and I hate hearing all the negativity because these people don't know my kids. My kids aren't going to be pushed around. And I'm just hoping that, that, that the young people realize that there was a time in America when you couldn't lie before 1987, when Ronald Reagan rescinded that fairness doctrine and allowed lies to be made legal without debate. 34 years later, you had the insurrection on January 6, 2021. And I'm hoping that the young people of America realize that their populace alone rules every election. I believe that they are living the life their parents grandparents and great-grandparents have given them. And if they're happy about it, they need to see a doctor. So young people need to fix what their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents have done to them. And I'm hoping that young people wake up and fix my country. Um, talk, <laughs> talk to me about gratitude. Oh, um, I'm, I'm a very grateful man. I've had a great life. Uh, even when I got hurt, even when the MS took my body, um, I tried to not think it was doing that. I've been very grateful to be able to be here long enough uh, to be able to watch what modern science has done with multiple sclerosis. I'm grateful to be able to be here long enough to see my kids grow up and get good brains. I'm grateful that my wife and I are together. I'm, you know, it's funny how we talk all the time. We're you know, she's my full-time caregiver. She, she works in the office across from me. So we're together all the time. She's been my caregiver since I turned this way. So, you know, we've been together a lot. And through all of this, we have never stepped back. Our love is there every day, every hour. So, you know, I'm real grateful. Uh, I, things could have gone differently for me a variety of times in my life, but I've had great radio station bosses. I've had great radio stations. I've run some fairly intelligent people crazy but I've made them better. And so I'm a grateful guy. I'm real happy. I, I'm, I, you know, I, 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 the Dalai Lama, doesn't he say that uh, so many questions? So wait a minute, you're the Dalai Lama. What if God doesn't let you in? He's a God looks at the Dalai Lama and said, it's him. Let him in. 
<laughs> if that's what happens, because I don't even know if that happens, but if that happens, I'm going to live a good enough life that he's like, ah, come on, let him in. You know what? That's a great place to, to stop our conversation. Um, it has been such a joy to speak with you. You inspire me. You are a, a storyteller extraordinary. <laughs> we could have continued this conversation for another hour. Um, you've talked about the importance of connection, of gratitude, of resilience, of adventure, of taking charge, of uh, taking risks, of uh, um, learning to see things, you know, from... Uh, a perspective of hope. And uh, I have so thoroughly enjoyed our, our conversation. Uh, Kim Curry, you keep on going because you have a lot to do to inspire the likes of the world. I appreciate your time today. I enjoy doing this and I specifically enjoy doing them with smart women. Just saying. <laughs> okay. If you have enjoyed today's show, Click the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Share the podcast with others. And if you want to help this podcast grow, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so more listeners tune into it. It really helps. In the meantime, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, choose hope. How will you choose hope today?